Welcome everyone to a new episode of our War Pod. In this episode, the Center for War Studies wants to shed a light on the various consequences that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has had for Russia, both internally and what consequences it has had for the Russian people, but also how the invasion has affected Russia's international relations, including their relationship with China. Our first guest is the Center for War Studies PhD fellow, Anna Nadibaitze. Welcome, Anna. Maybe we can start with you uh, quickly introducing yourself and what you're working on. Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Anna Nadibaitze. I'm a PhD fellow at the Center for War Studies in International Politics. And um, my research is on weaponized artificial intelligence and autonomy in the military, and especially focusing on Russia. And it is also Russia and Russian public opinion and the Russian people that we want to talk about in the context of the war in Ukraine and sort of its, its consequences, right, on what's going on in Russia. So what do you see are the short-term perspectives on, uh, on how, how is this affecting Russia and the Russian people? There are, of course, people who support um, the invasion and they believe that this is a liberating operation, um, uh, that um, this is uh, good for the people of Ukraine, and that they are defended against the uh, Nazi or fascist uh, Ukrainian leadership that is supported by the West and the US, which seeks to divide uh, Russia and Ukraine. Mostly the these people... Um, only have access to state media and so they believe the narratives that they're being told by the state media. Most of these people are from the lower class, so many of the measures that have been taken by, for example, companies like clothing brands or McDonald's or yeah, food companies, IKEA, um, do not really affect these people that much. Of course, there are some things that would affect them, uh, rising food prices and the lack of um, basic products in supermarkets. But these are not the, the types of people who would go out and, and protest um, over that. Uh, rather, they would bring on the mentality of um, we've been through much worse in our history, uh, the Russian people, and we can go through this as well. Of course, there, there are people who oppose uh, the Russian government's uh, actions and narratives. Um, some of these uh, people go out to protest. Uh, some of these have fled uh, the country. But, but the thing that we have to remember is that um, there is uh, an important repression machine, um, especially right now. Free speech is, is basically forbidden and criminalized. So a lot of people are simply afraid to voice their opinions about the situation. And then there's a spectrum of opinions that go from I don't, I'm not interested in politics or um, just uh, people who, who, don't, um, who don't support the, the war but still support, for instance, the annexation of Crimea or other narratives from the Russian government. So all this to say that there is a spectrum of opinions, even right now what we see in the short term uh, in Russian public opinion, It's, it's not a clear situation either. But what does this mean for the longer term consequences for, for Russia, for Putin's regime, for, you know, the, the future also with the sanctions and, and everything? What, what, what do you think? Uh, I think that right now um, there are no obvious signs of major political changes um, in, in Russia and that there are no 
kind of uh, signs of a major revolution coming or neither a coup against Putin in, in the elite. Uh, we see that um, while there are reports that the elite or top officials haven't been really prepared for this uh, full-scale uh, invasion of Ukraine, they, they kind of been taken by surprise, but still they risk a lot by defecting and can easily just be replaced by other more loyal technocrats if they do so. So even if there are people who, who might oppose and, uh, you know, not be unhappy with Putin's decisions, uh, this, yeah, this doesn't mean much for political change or or um, any kind of suspicion of coup uh, against him. At least for, for now, it's it's difficult to see how there might be major changes. There might not be a sign of major political changes internally in Russia. However, the invasion of Ukraine has had some consequences concerning Russia's international standing and their influence on other countries. Our next guest will elaborate on that. Welcome to Vincent. So my name is Vincent Keating and I'm an associate professor at the Center for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. And, uh, and part of the research that I do is on Russian conservative soft power. Um, now, what, uh, what that means uh, is I'm interested in the ways in which the Russian state influences, uh, you know, particularly populist parties in the West uh, to basically create support for their foreign policy. There's an assumption right now that Russia has almost no soft power. And because they have almost no soft power, what they have at their disposal is either things like propaganda or disinformation, um, so they try to confuse uh, the Western audiences or they try to portray themselves or the West either in a positive light for themselves or a negative light for us. Um, or they have hard power like we see in the Ukraine. We know that the Russian regime for the last decade has, has been trumpeting a conservative line. Uh, they've really be, been uh, talking about how they're a symbol of traditional Christianity. We see Putin as a type of strong leader. And there's other types of conservative messages that have been coming out of the regime. So what we were interested in is, can these be attractive in the West? And as soon as we we sort of decided to, to, to look into it, we, we found it all over the place to the extent that we, we, we found that, in fact, there are many, many sort of political leaders in the West, uh, normally on the populist uh, end of things, mostly right wing, mostly far right, but also a few on the far left that openly look to Russia with admiration. They openly say in the media on many occasions that either Russia uh, or Putin himself basically is a model for them, uh, that, that, or that you know, Russia is, is, for instance, conserving traditional values, or that Putin is a strong leader, unlike the wimpy EU bureaucrats. But the important thing about soft power is that it's power. It actually is, is functional for the Russian regime. Because it wasn't just that we saw these populist leaders praise Russia for what they were doing, for their values, but when and where they did that, they also supported Russian foreign policy, particularly controversial foreign policy. It's, it's not super shocking that populist leaders throughout the West, prior to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, supported Russia and supported Russian objectives, um, you know, uh, up and until and sometimes after the invasion of, of Ukraine, if we think about the problem simply in terms of propaganda and disinformation, 
then we're talking about unwanted flows of information. We're talking about the internet and various uh, you know, uh, technologies allowing information that we would prefer not to come into the West to come into the West. And therefore our solutions are oriented around controlling these flows of information. And those solutions are very different if you not only think about this as unwanted flows of information, but think about it as unwanted flows of information that are actually meeting a heterogeneous audience. So the heterogeneity of the audience then matters because it's being received differently by different members of the Western political elite. Uh, in this case, much more positively by, the, by, by generally the far right and some far left populist groups. If you put that in perspective now with the war um, in Ukraine, what do you think are the long-term consequences of these, of these dynamics? The first problem that you could probably identify for continuing Russian soft power is the humanitarian disaster of the war. Um, humanitarianism and human suffering in war tends to be pretty, uh, you know, it, it's not reserved to just the left or the right. Uh, and we can see within uh, American uh, audiences that, for instance, uh, conservative Christian audiences, the Republican Party in particular, um, that there's been a, a, a large reaction to the, to the amount of uh, human suffering that, that, that has happened uh, in Ukraine, which has almost certainly eroded uh, the soft power that Russia has. The other problem that Russia has, of course, is that it's done very poorly in the war. And, and given that uh, part of the conservative audience is, is, you know, is one of a strong state with strong leadership, the inability of a much, much larger Russian military to defeat a, a, a much, much smaller Ukrainian military is not very good for selling this message. Um, so that's another at least short-term problem that the Russians now face. How is it that you can get back this conservative resonating idea of strength and leadership amidst uh, what has been a fiasco of a military campaign? That's all short and possibly medium term. I mean, the, 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 the thing that's interesting about it is what does this mean for the long term? And it's a question we don't know. Um, but what you might think about is how there are certain types of historical analogies that might, uh, that, that might guide us, particularly historical analogies where you had support for a particular ideological stance that then become, because of a war or some sort of you know, large-scale political violence, becomes untenable or at least you know, more untenable than it was before. The way that the Soviet Union invaded both Hungary and Czechoslovakia in the Cold War as a turning point for many people on the left as to whether they were going to support the Soviet Union or not. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of well known that, uh, that these were, for, for many people, led them to a situation where they had to really re-examine what was the type of regime that they were supporting with the Soviet Union. And as a consequence, many people left communist parties um, or at least um, you know, broke away from the, the, the communist international at the time. You know, it didn't stop communism, right? And it didn't stop people from supporting the Soviet Union, but it certainly dented the attractiveness of the, of the ideology. So, you know, the, the, the question is, we, 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 you know, what does this mean for the current Russian regime? Uh, we know likely that they will suffer some short-term consequences. The real interesting uh, thing will be how the war will end and whether the Russians can spin the end of a war in their favor um, because they can, if they can somehow save face with their audiences, that might help them a little bit. Um, and, uh, and at the end of the day, uh, to what extent uh, the rest of the liberal West, okay, the non-populist uh, liberal West, 
is successful in leveraging uh, previous support for the Russian regime amidst the context of the Ukrainian war in order to basically delegitimize, uh, you know, the populist groups that, uh, that, that, that previously supported the Russian regime. We also have invited Paul Rohan to talk about how Russia might be able to save face, what the opportunities are concerning a possible exit strategy. Paul, maybe uh, you want to introduce yourself and your research. Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Paul Röhren. I'm a postdoc at the Center for War Studies uh, and also in international politics at um, the University of Southern Denmark. Yeah, And my research is mostly on the pursuit of social status and prestige in world politics. One of the things that I've been looking at for the past two years or so is the development of Russia's social standing in world politics. So maybe you can say a few words how your research in terms of Russia's status then connects to potential uh, exit strategies. Are there any? Are there none? What's, I mean, what's going on there? What are the options? By all kind of benchmarks, um, the, the war in Ukraine has been a complete failure from Russia's point of view. From my point of view, you know, Putin's own personal reputation as an intelligent and calculated leader is pretty much shattered. You know, Russia's newfound kind of momentum for great power status, as happened after 2014, if it hasn't disappeared, is about to disappear a little bit. Um, and Russia now is, is basically a pariah. It's isolated, it's alone, um, and it's downgraded from all of this. Even on domestically, even though I think the probabilities for a coup or a popular, popular revolution is low, I still think um, the probability is higher than it's ever been, right? W when we look at all of these things, what's the rational thing to do for Putin? Well, I mean, the rational thing to do is, is basically to reconsider and maybe, you know, scale back a little bit and, and cut your losses to a certain extent. I think that you know, the reason why he hasn't done that is because he's invested too much personal prestige, too much, too much money, too much military effort to actually cut his losses and then um, make a U-turn. And so even though I think it's unlikely that Putin might reconsider uh, in this regard, I think one of the key things is that we should leave the door open for him to actually cut his losses. And that means that we need to make it sort of attractive for him to, to, to come to the negotiating table and eventually, um, or, or at least enable the possibility that he can save some face. And that's where these ideas of exit strategies comes in. You know, when looking at the sanctions from a Western point of view, um, it is quite unclear to me what their intentions are. First, there are a bunch of people who just wants to punish Putin for, for, for his actions. So essentially the punishment is the goal. And then you have those who, who want to deter Putin from um, doing similar actions elsewhere, for instance, in the neighboring country, in neighbor NATO countries, right? To make sure he doesn't do it again. Um, Third, there are those who, who want to use the sanction to facilitate uh, a coup or a popular revolution of some sort, that the Russian population will be so annoyed with all of these things that they will revolt against their leaders. And, and fourth, there is a, an idea that you want Putin to retreat somehow, or at least bring him to the negotiating table with real intentions. 
Um, I personally think all of these motives are legitimate and fair, right? Um, but I think it needs to be clearly formulated. What do we really want with these sanctions and not just use them quite haphazardly and just throw them out there and hope that, you know, they have some effect. And most importantly, if one of the motivations is to bring Putin to the negotiating table, I think there needs to be a very clear exit strategy. Putin needs to know which one of the sanctions will be lifted if he does reconsider and wants to go to the negotiating table. Because if he sees that, you know, regardless of what he does, the sanctions will be in place, they will continue to be sanctions, then he has zero incentives to come to the negotiating table. Instead, he might just, you know, um, double down uh, in, in a desperate attempt to save face. How likely is it that, you know, in the longer term perspective, that this is what's going to happen? I mean, do you see that the West, A, will be better to communicate what the sanctions are there for? Is it likely that Putin will take it if it's communicated more clearly? I, I think, first of all, I think it's a, a necessity that, that these sanctions are formulated more clearly um, because I think to a certain extent their effect is dependent on that clear formulation. Um, now, it always comes, you know, um, if there's one thing we know is that Putin is not really good at keeping agreements, but it's a different thing to do it when um, you have been more or less publicly humiliated in front of the world. Like your cars aren't that strong anymore. So, you know, the longer this war goes on and we're now a month in where there hasn't been any decisive defeat at all and it's not really looking like it's going to happen anytime soon. Um, from my point of view, his card is just getting weaker and weaker. What about the interpretation of the signaling, right? Because so when I come at this from a deterrence defense standpoint, um, you have to signal your political will, right? And you have to communicate that very clearly. So where's, where are your lines? What, I mean, what are, you, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. what are you trying to deter? How are you deterring it? What are you defending if you have to and these things, right? Part of the discussion that we are having um, is about whether these signals are actually being understood, right? I mean, how do we make sure that coming from the West, that Russia actually understands our threats and our red lines based on their own culture and their own approaches And now when you say that, you know, Putin doesn't have the best reputation in terms of sticking to his agreements, yeah. um, do you think that there's something here that he might not just believe that we're saying will ease the sanctions or? I think we've kind of opened Pandora's box of sanctions at the moment, which means that oh, what I think is that um, in doing that, it makes it possible to do it again. If he does decide to come to the negotiating table and we lift some of the sanctions because of that, but we find that his intentions are not really pure, I think the possibility of just reinstating those sanctions um, is a lot easier now than what it was, let's say, a couple of years ago. Knowing that increases the credibility from the Western's point of view, right, that we are going to do this. And Putin has already seen that a lot has been done and we can do it again. It, it also seems like there is a willingness um, among people in the West to endure the side effects of these sanctions, right? We're willing to be a little bit colder and pay a little bit more for our gas. 
um, in order to have these sanctions in place. I think overall there is a willingness to use these sanctions. It's not so much, it's in a, in a way you can actually act, right? You don't have to just signal, but as soon as he makes a move into the right direction, you mm -hmm. could be like, okay, we wave, like we get rid of some sanctions, you know, come closer to the negotiating yeah. table, right? And then if he backs away, then you can say, okay, the sanctions have come back. Yeah. We're now talking more short-term consequences of this or what we should do in the short term, which is to make this prioritization of these sanctions very clear. The broader question that we have to grapple with um, beyond just ending the war, it's also how do we reintroduce Russia and eventually Putin um, back to the international society again, right? Because, you know, questions like on what premises... Um, is Russia led back into the international system? And I'm not saying that I have a plan about this, but I'm, I just think there's equally important that there is a way back for Russia in this regards, um, because Russia will exist regardless of what happens in Ukraine, right? And regardless of what happens with Putin. I think the um, Russian leadership and especially the Russian people need to see that there is a way back into the international society somehow. In addition to f providing this way out out of all of this, um, there needs to be increasing pressure, which we've already seen in the last few, few weeks, on China um, to bring in the third party here. Because it is clear to me that that alternative order is going to be composed of Russia and China. From a Western point of view, if we're talking about our agency in all of this, um, we need China. Um, but China also needs us. It also needs to be made explicitly clear, which I think is being done at the moment, that China cannot expect to be that integrated into this Western economy and the Western-led global economy to a certain extent and being best friends with Russia. And to elaborate on the relationship between China and Russia and how it has been affected by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we have invited Gyangyu Franco. Welcome to Guangyu. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Guangyu Franco, uh, a postdoctoral research fellow in international politics. So I'm currently working at the Center for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. Part of our conversation here today is the Russia-China relationship, right? So how... How does China play into the war in Ukraine and sort of to, you know, Russian policies and politics and what's going on? So maybe for the short term perspective on things, I mean, how does this what's going on in, in Ukraine now affect the relationship between Russia and China? So um, China has taken a neutral stand since the start of the conflict. It has uh, refused to openly condemn Russia for the attack uh, and also in its state media and hasn't even called this attack an invention. China is against imposing unilateral sanctions on Russia. Instead, that it tried to promote um, the two sides to uh, resolve their disputes through negotiations and dialogues. China is still trying to preserve this valuable alignment with Russia, but also at the same time that is uh, try to um, stand by its long-term policy on non-interference and also territory integrity, and also try to avoid being the collateral damage in the war. 
this war definitely um, puts China into a very awkward position. So this is, has been commented uh, like just uh, by many international analysts uh, seeing um, China's position as quite awkward. Uh, and um, I think um, it's because um, these two countries haven't been this closely allied in history. Um, so the relationship between China and Russia has ups and downs um, since, uh, you know, China's establishment in 1949. However, uh, what we are seeing is that uh, the countries, uh, the two countries now, they're going uh, very close. So just in February this year, uh, Xi Jinping and Putin declared to build a friendship with no limits between the two countries. If you look at this economic relationship, so they are highly interdependent. Um, so Russia exports um, arms and also energy um, and also farm products to China, and China sends uh, consumer goods in the other direction. Um, so uh, and also, uh, it's, I want to highlight that China relies a lot on Russia for energy. So twelve percent of its uh, imports of um, crude oil and gas come from Russia. On the other hand, that I think China would not really have interest in supporting this like Russian aggression against Ukraine, uh, because. Uh, what's ha happened uh, on the ground in Ukraine now is against anything it has to see about territory integrity and non-interference. Um, so um, these principles are the cornerstone of China's foreign policy and uh, the China needs them to defend its claims over territories such as Taiwan and Tibet. We also need to consider China's economic development and also how integrated it is in this uh, global economy. So China needs to maintain its strong economic development to maintain its political legitimacy. Uh, and its economic development depends on its close um, economic as well as other connections with the West. So uh, I don't think that China will try to uh, sacrifice this like economic development just to um, support Russia. Uh, and also, um, this uh, like year 2022 is very important for China because in the end of the year, uh, Chinese Party Congress is going to elect the new leadership. Although that Xi Jinping is expected to stay on for the third term, China needs political stability than any time than before, and it needs this like economic development, which is challenged by the pandemic. Uh, and also now um, by this Ukraine-Russia war. So uh, I, I really think that China would uh, be interested in preventing this like further escalation of this conflict between the two countries. And also we should not forget about that uh, Ukraine is uh, an important um, trade partner for China. Uh, and uh, so it is also a member of this Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, that's very interesting. So China is basically caught a little bit in the middle, right? And in the, in this necessary position of neutrality in a way. What do you think are the long-term consequences of what we're seeing today in terms of the war in Ukraine, but also this longer-term relationship between Russia and China? I think, uh, yeah, uh, China as well as all the other big countries, the they probably going to the, if there is one lesson they can learn from this war is that they can have str strategic miscalculations. 
I feel like Putin at the beginning was expecting a quick victory, uh, and so this is what the expectation of China uh, and also many of the observers in China as well. Uh, but however, this didn't really happen. Chinese leadership they could take this into consideration when、uh, thinking about the, like handling their relationships with the neighboring countries in the future. So,、uh, and also I feel this like、um, the scope、uh, and also the rapidity of the sanctions that the West was able to impose on Russia would uh, uh, trouble. On China as well,、uh, so because by learning about these consequences of this overt conflict,、uh, I think China would be also more careful in、uh, dealing its relationships with Taiwan, especially. Other long-term impacts,、um, and just if we look outside China、uh, and Russia, so、uh, I think.、Uh, Yeah, just I'm a bit concerned that the international order could become more volatile in the short term. This kind of like war really raises the sense of insecurity in many countries, especially small to medium-sized countries.、Uh, and then you see the kind of like rapid build-up in defense capacity in many countries, including Germany,、uh, including、um, Japan. Um, as well as China, so which announced a seven point one percent increase in defense budget earlier this year. Ah,、uh, so um, I feel like what happening in, in like Europe for now. So you see that it, like NATO countries are yeah, or or Euro European countries seem to be closer to the U.S. So which is something that China doesn't want to see. <laughs> Uh, I think yeah. Just after this, or、uh, like I think when the fighting stops, that China probably will keep、um, cutting European countries to try to speed them from the U.S. in order to maintain this like independence of European countries. Thank you so much to Guangyu for contributing today, and also to our other guests, of course, Anna, Vincent, and Paul. Thank you all so much. And thank you all for listening. Goodbye.